So right now, we're all sitting here in the Boys and Girls Club, and the ground beneath our feet appears to be very sturdy. As best as I can tell, nobody's been wondering what's going to happen on the ground underneath us. And that's how we go about our daily lives, right? We build homes and cities on the ground. We conduct our everyday lives on it. But on rare occasions, the solid ground can simply open up without warning, dropping whatever it was supporting into an unpredictably deep hole known as a sinkhole. Quite literally, the bottom just drops out. Have you seen pictures of these sinkholes? I've got a few of them here for you. Look at these things. They're just massive, unpredictable. Nobody knew it was coming, and the bottom just fell out. Look at this next one here. Just devastation. This one comes from a Corvette uh, museum. All those beautiful cars just down into a chasm. Look here. People are walking on the sidewalk, and boom, it just opens up. Now, I don't want to terrify anyone today. These sinkholes are cavities in the ground that form whenever water beneath the surface erodes the rock layer. And though it seems sudden, right, when the moment it breaks, it's sudden, but sinkholes are created over time as this underground water erodes that rock layer beneath the surface so that only a thin layer of surface remains on top. And at that point, It's just a matter of time and pressure for that veneer to collapse. In our passage this morning, Jesus is talking with his disciples in the upper room. It's the night in which he's betrayed and his public ministry has come to an end. He's about to endure the shame and pain of the cross. And here, in the final hours before he goes to the cross, he spends his last moments comforting his disciples. Another way to think about it is the reality of his departure. Though he said it over and over, he's predicted it, the reality of it has started to become real. And it's eroded the bedrock underneath them. You remember last week, Judas has left the room to go betray Jesus, creating that pressure point for the veneer to collapse. And now as the disciples are Feeling the weight of that fall, the bottom has fallen out and it's left a sinkhole in their soul. And Jesus, the model pastor, he's keenly aware of the emotional and spiritual fragility and state of his disciples. Instead of thinking about all that he is about to bear, he's thinking about his disciples. And multiple times in this conversation with them, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Friends, what do we do when the foundation of our life has given way? When the bottom drops out, leaving a sinkhole in our soul? Perhaps for you, the day-to-day stress of living during a global pandemic has caused traumatic erosion in your soul. For some, the constant tension of the new cycle of racial and political unrest is too much to bear. Maybe for you, it's feeling like you get one step forward financially only to be knocked two steps back, only to be knocked back, and you are just tired of the rat race. Maybe for some of you, 
It's the loss of dear friends and family. And there's an ache that just never seems to go away. Whatever it is for you, this morning Jesus speaks three words of hope into the sinkhole of our soul. First, Jesus looks and says that we are reconciled. If you're taking notes today, I want you to write that word down. That is true of you if you are in Christ. You are reconciled. You see, the greatest sinkhole in anyone's soul is caused by an erosion of relationship with God. And by grace, because of Christ, we can be reconciled to God. Second, Jesus says that we are restored. Write that word down. That's true of you if you are in Christ, that God meets us where we are and begins a restoration and renewal process so that we're able to live the way God has meant us to live. And the third word of hope this morning that Jesus is going to speak is that we are resourced. See, God actively equips and helps us along the way so that we are never alone and without help. So we're going to see today in our text that we are reconciled, restored, and resourced. Look with me in chapter 14. We'll begin in verses 16 to 24 to see that we are reconciled. Now, this is a, a big chunk of Scripture. There's a lot of different directions we could go with it. But as I read these over you, I want you to listen for words of reconciliation and relationship. There's about seven phrases that speak about our reconciliation and relationship with God in these verses. Let's look together in verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet in a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And because I live, you will also live. And that day you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Did you catch those words and phrases of reconciliation and relationship? He said, the helper will be with you forever. He will dwell with you and be with you and in you. Jesus told them, I will not leave you. I will come to you. That you will be in me and I in you. Those who love me will be loved by my Father. The word Father itself is a relational word. And I will love him. Think about how many times the, the idea of, of, of being loved and dwelling with a triune God is in there. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, we, meaning the Father in Christ, will come to him and make our home with him. Now, again, like I said, there's lots that could be mined in this passage. But for right now, I want you to see that in the midst of the disciples' heartache, on the cusp of difficult days ahead for the disciples, when it feels like the bottom is going to drop out 
from beneath them, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled because God is with you. And he's not saying like God is with you in some impersonal way, like God is everywhere. So because he's everywhere, he's kind of near to you. No, no, he's saying God is in you and for you in the strongest possible sense. Now I want to go back to this illustration of the sinkhole, because I think it gives us a great visual picture of the devastation and brokenness of sin. When you see a picture of a sinkhole, one of the first things that that goes through your mind is, how can this be? It shouldn't be this way. There shouldn't be a home at the bottom of a hole. There shouldn't be these beautiful Corvettes at the bottom of a hole. There shouldn't be a sidewalk where people are walking every day. It should not open up. The ground beneath us should be firm and solid. It's not supposed to give way, but that's what sin has done. First and foremost, sin has broken a foundational relationship between God and and humanity, and its devastation has rippled out from it to, to affect everything. At every level, sin is a violation of a relationship with God. Listen to how how the late J.I. Packer defines sin. If you don't know who J.I. Packer is, he uh, passed away a couple of weeks ago. His, 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 uh, his books have been incredibly helpful to me. If you're looking for a good book to read, J.I. Packer is a great author. He writes this. This is how he defines sin. Sin is lawlessness in relation to God as lawgiver, rebellion in relation to God as rightful ruler, missing the mark in relation to God as our designer, guilt in relation to God as judge, uncleanness in relation to God as the Holy One. Sin is a perversity touching each one of us at every point in our lives. What that means is, is that there's no one in here right now who has not been impacted by the sin in the world and your own personal sin, and there's not a part of you that isn't impacted by it. Our minds are impacted by sin. Uh, Our actions are impacted by sin. Our desires are impacted by sin. Sin is perversity at every level, affecting everyone in every kind of way. And did you see how in his definition, sin is a violation of a relationship to God? God is our lawgiver, rightful ruler, designer, judge. He's the holy one that that deserves nothing less than our full worship and obedience. He's our creator, our sustainer. He is the one to whom we owe our very life and breath. As you are breathing right now underneath these masks and you can feel your breath in a way that you probably don't normally feel, that very breath comes from God. It's from him. And yet, in our thought life, in our words, and our deeds, by the things we've done and the things we've left undone, we disregard, disrespect, and disobey God. That is all of us, and I am the chief among them. And that is why we experience sinkholes, whether they're physical ones, emotional, financial, societal, spiritual. Every sinkhole we experience traces its root to the impact of sin. 
We experience sinkholes because sin erodes the bedrock underneath until there's nothing left to support us. And yet God in his mercy and grace, instead of leaving us in that pit, he comes down to get us. He reaches down and pulls us up and says, I love you and I want to fix what's broken and live with you again. Commentator Bruce Milne says it well. The gulf separating creator from creature, the holy one from sinners, will be bridged. The fruit of the going away of Jesus will be the reconciling of those who believe with the living God, producing a life which fulfills the ancient divine purpose, I will dwell among them and be their God. Since the one whom Jesus sends is the indwelling spirit, what Jesus is asserting here is nothing less than that our poor and needy hearts will become the residents of our triune God. All three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, make a home within us. It is difficult to do any justice in words to so immense a vision or so rich a gifting. Friends, what Jesus is saying here is that the one true and living God who eternally exists in three persons as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit wants to dwell with us and in us. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, as his disciples felt the weight of his departure, Jesus looked at them right in the face, saying, let not your heart be troubled. All of the sad things are coming untrue because God will dwell with his people again. The helper, the Holy Spirit will be with you. My father and I will come and we will make our home with you. You think about that word home. He didn't just say we're going to um, uh, come, come make a house in you. He's, he uses that, that more personal word of a home, right? A home is where relationship happens. A home is where you are loved and accepted. And Jesus says, we will make our home with you. Family, I believe that so much of our low-grade, everyday heartache is due to the simple reality that we were born into this world as orphans without a home. And Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. You can have a loving father with brothers and sisters in Christ. And not only that, there will come a day when you will finally and forever be home, at rest, at peace. No more sinkholes, no more destruction, no more chaos. In other words, what Jesus is saying, he's looking at his disciples, and I believe he's also looking through the halls of history, looking at us right now and saying, you can deal with every sinkhole in your life because the ultimate sinkhole has been filled. The ground that ultimately matters has been fixed and it will never bottom out. So first, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled because you are reconciled. Second, Jesus says we are restored. 
In our passage this morning, Jesus gives three major areas where we see the restoring work of God in our lives. First, we are restored from death to life. Look at verse 19 again. Jesus said, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And listen to these words. Because I live, you also will live. Jesus is speaking about his death and resurrection. Remember, in just a few short hours, Jesus will endure a mock trial. He will be crucified on a Roman cross. He will die. His heart will stop beating. He will be pronounced dead. A a soldier will, just to make sure, uh, pierce him with a spear where blood and water flows down. And he will be buried in a rich man's tomb. That's why he says, soon the world will see me no more. But then he says, you, speaking to the disciples, will see me. This is Jesus referring to his resurrection. After three days, that big stone that's put in front of his grave is rolled away, and Jesus rises from the dead and appears to his disciples. And when they see him, their faith, which at this point is a tiny little seed, it grows exponentially into a fruit-bearing tree. And then Jesus says, because I live, you will also live. Do you know that your very life is connected to the life of Christ? We are able to overcome death because Jesus has overcome death. We're able to live because Christ lives in us. That's what he's he's getting at when he goes to verse 20. He says, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Christ is in you, family, and you are in Christ. This is what theologians have called a believer's union with Christ. What that means is this. We are joined together with Jesus in such a way that what is true of Christ becomes true of us. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. Now to help you think about it, think about the relationship between an electrical plug and an outlet or a socket, okay? When a plug is inserted into the outlet, the plug is connected to the power that's inherent inside the outlet. What does the plug give to the outlet? Nothing, right? The plug gives nothing to the outlet. The outlet gives everything to the plug. As Christians, we are the plug and Christ is the outlet. To be in Christ is to be plugged into him so that his inherent life surges into us. This is precisely Paul's point in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but what? Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So because Christ has loved you and given himself up for you, we have access to the very life of Christ. This is just one example of over 160 in Paul's letters. If you were to take all of Paul's letters and read them over 160 times, Paul will use that little phrase, in Christ or in God and in him. And all of those little phrases are packed with power and meaning because they detail to us all of the significance and benefits of our union in Christ. 
I don't have time this morning to deep dive into our union with Christ. At some point, we will need to do a whole sermon series on it. But right now, I want you to see that in the midst of what for the disciples feels like abject hopelessness, Jesus says, you can have hope. Why? Because I live, you will live. There's nothing you're going to face today or tomorrow or in the days ahead that can take that away. My life, I will give to you. We are given the benefit, the restoration of moving from death to life. But second, we're also restored from brokenness to peace. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This concept of peace in the Bible is more than just tranquility and quiet, okay? So like at the end of the night when I'm trying to get all of the kids in bed, what I want in that moment is tranquility and quiet. I'd like to go off the clock, right? I'd like to punch my dad card in and just be a man, right? Just be a human being with some peace and quiet. But that is not the biblical concept of peace. It's much more than that. This is that concept of shalom. Have you heard that word before? Shalom, right? It's more than just a greeting. It's more than just hello. This is a Hebrew word that means wholeness. Shalom is the way things are supposed to be. So if you're looking at sinkholes, that's a picture of all that it shouldn't be, the way things aren't supposed to be. Shalom is everything as it should be. It's more than just the absence of chaos. It is, but it's also order and thriving and flourishing. It's not neutral. It's, it's a picture of thriving, flourishing. And Jesus says, that's what I give to you. I will give you my peace. Not the way the world offers, not the peace the world offers. See, the world can offer attempts at peace, right? The world can offer sometimes semblance of peace. The world can offer moments of peace, but it cannot offer the peace of Christ. It cannot bring an end to the, other, to the utter brokenness of our world. It cannot bring um, uh, the chaos and the destruction of the world into shalom. Now we can try, and it's good that we do try to bring about peace, but we will always come up short of the peace of Christ because only Christ can give it. And that's what Christ promises to give his people. So right now, if you are in Christ, we experience an already not yet reality of that peace, right? We don't, shalom is not in full blossom. We get some of it now and we long for the fullness of it to come. And that's why if you've met someone who's been following Christ for some time, you'll notice that even in the midst of trial and pain, as you're talking to them, you go, there's a, there's a peace in you that I can't quite explain. Your circumstances wouldn't lead me to think that you would be living at peace right now. But that's a reality for those in Christ because Christ gives us his peace even right now. There is a fullness of peace to come, but if you are in Christ, we can have uh, a, a real, genuine uh, experience of that peace right now. Now, 
We might be surrounded by brokenness, yet because of our union with Christ, because we are in Christ and Christ is in us, we have access to his peace. Now, don't forget about the context of this conversation. I don't want you to forget what's happening in this scene. Jesus has just been betrayed. He's about to endure the trial of his life, and yet he remains at peace. It's one of the most remarkable things about him throughout this whole conversation as every waking moment leads him one step closer to the pain and shame of the cross. Jesus is at peace. And not only that, he's able to extend that peace to his disciples. He's able to comfort them. And the peace that Jesus has, the peace he gave to his disciples, it's the same peace he gives to us today. And he generously gives it. So we are restored, not only from death to life, not only from brokenness to peace, but third, we are restored from disobedience to obedience. Look at several verses with me. Verse 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23 and 4, Jesus answered and says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Three times in this passage, I think I've read it three times now, Jesus ties our obedience to him and our love for him together. It's never an either or. Now don't get these confused. Jesus isn't saying, earn my life and earn my love by your obedience. Rather, he's saying, express your love for me by your obedience. Now, if you get those confused, you've made a massive categorical error. You cannot get these confused. If you go back and read the gospel of John, let alone the entire New Testament, you will see that relationship to God is by grace alone through faith alone. And yet, our faith is never a faith that remains alone. Genuine faith in Christ, genuine love for Jesus will result in a life of obedience. Christian love, friends, are never empty love. We don't love in theory, but not in practice. We don't just get to flippantly or casually say, I love Jesus, but I could care less about his words. Jesus is saying, one of the marks of love for me will be evidenced in the way that you live your life. Genuine love displays itself through action. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, if you truly love me, you will care about my words. You will obey my words and keep my commands. Not perfectly, no one does, but progressively and persistently over time, you will see a change in your life. What is disobedience? Disobedience is living against God's design and his desire for our life. As we are reconciled to him, we learn more about him. We learn more about his design and his desires for our life. And as we are being changed and transformed by them, our desires to want to live according to his design will follow. So as that restoration process begins in, in our life, we begin to live according to his design. We begin to desire 
the things that he desires. And not only do we just start to obey, we start to see the glory and good of that design. If you've been following with Christ for some time, you will start to see that the, the, the way that you live your life, you start to see God's glory in it. When you choose to obey, even if it's hard, even if it's not what you ultimately in, the, in that first moment want to do, but when you've obeyed, when you've walked down that path of obedience for some time, you look back and you go, man, God, your glory and your design are evident here. And it's that life of obedience where we begin to thrive and flourish. It's actually in living that way that we start to see some of that shalom come into our life. And so in the midst of the disciples' despair, Jesus says, I I know it seems like hope is lost, but where there is death, there will be life. Where there is brokenness, there will be peace. And where there is disobedience, there will be obedience. That's what Jesus offers in this restoration. So Jesus can look at his disciples and he can look at us this morning and say, let not your hearts be troubled because you will be reconciled and you will be restored. But there's a third word that Jesus gives us this morning and he says that we will be resourced. Look with me at verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then if we jump ahead in chapter 16, verse 6 and 7, Jesus says, Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now twice in chapter 14 and once here in 16, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper. Not only that, did you notice that Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go so that I can send the Spirit to you. His disciples must have been thinking, what good could possibly come from you leaving us? What good could possibly come, Jesus, from your departure? And not only has Jesus outlined some of the good, but he, he goes one step further and says, it's actually to your advantage. It's better. It's not just good that I go. It's better that I go because that will begin the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When I leave, the ministry of the Spirit can begin. Now, did you notice as I was reading that, that the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force. Did you notice that he said, he will teach you all things? Every single time in this passage, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit. In fact, every time the New Testament refers to the Holy Spirit, the personal pronoun, he or him, is used. And you might be thinking, what's the big deal? Well, because I'm a grammar nerd, it's a big deal, okay? Grammatically speaking, according to Greek grammar, the word for spirit should use the impersonal pronoun. The word for spirit should use the pronoun it. But the fact that Jesus trumps good Greek grammar with better theology is significant. Good theology overrides Greek grammar here. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is fully God, equal in power and glory with the Father and the Son, and he is a person. That's why he uses he and him. It would be the equivalent of me referring to you as an it. You are not an it, 
an impersonal object. You are a he or a she, a him or a her, because you are a person. The Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is a person, fully God. Now, again, I don't have time today to deep dive into the person and work of the Spirit, if you want to learn more about that, I recommend checking out a sermon we did in the Apostles' Creed sermon series called I Believe in the Holy Spirit. You can find it on our podcast or on um, our resource page of our, uh, on the sermons page of our website. We, go, we do a whole sermon on uh, the Holy Spirit. But here, the Holy Spirit is called our helper because he equips and helps believers in our everyday experience as Christians. So what are some of the ways that the Holy Spirit helps us? In summary form, I like the way the New City Catechism says it. The question is, how does the Holy Spirit help us? Answer, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, comforts us, guides us, gives us spiritual gifts and the desire to obey God, and the Spirit enables us to pray and understand God's word. This is an excellent summary of the work of the Holy Spirit who brings conviction of sin, comfort in our times of sorrow, guidance at the everyday stuff of life. He gives believers spiritual gifts to serve the church and advance the mission of God. And he begins to change us from the inside out so that we truly begin to desire what God desires. And as we are living out the Christian life and spiritual disciplines, it's the spirit who enables us to pray and understand God's word. Right now, it's the spirit who takes these imperfect words from an imperfect man and settles them into hearts or takes the preaching of God's word to do the work of transformation. Simply put, friends, the Christian life is not possible without the Holy Spirit. Now in John 14 and 16, Jesus highlights two of the ways that the Spirit helps us. First, we see that the Spirit guides and teaches us. Did you notice that Jesus specifically calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth? Truth characterizes who the spirit is. If you want to know what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful, then we need to get to know and be taught and be led by the Holy Spirit. It's the spirit who guides and teaches us according to the truth. Now, in verse 26, we saw that the Spirit teaches us all things and brings to remembrance the words of Christ. Now, in this passage specifically, I think there's a primary application to the disciples specifically as they are going to become the capital A apostles that go on to start the church and to put pen, uh, uh, put quill to parchment to write the New Testament. But that said, I do think generally this applies to all Christians because the Holy Spirit is the one who guides and leads Christians. Like in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, uh, uh, Paul writes, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So in general, every Christian, every son and daughter of God has access to the ministry of the Holy Spirit to grow in holiness, to live according to the design and desires of God. And as you store up the scriptures in your heart, as you uh, 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 read and meditate on the words of Christ, it's the Holy Spirit who brings them to remembrance in your time of need. As you fill the storehouse of your soul with the word of God, as you go about your daily life, 
The Spirit will draw from that storehouse to give you the right word for the right moment at the right time. And we're led by the Spirit in that walk. Every Christian, as you begin your time of study in the word uh, and prayer, should begin with um, asking the Holy Spirit of truth to open up your eyes to see the scriptures clearly, to teach you how to grow in faithfulness and in the truth. The Spirit teaches and guides believers. And second, the Spirit exposes and convicts. Look with me at, at chapter uh, verses 8 to 11 in, in chapter 16. This is a really dense couple of verses, so hang with me here. And when he comes, the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So first, let's talk about this word of conviction. What does the word convict mean? Convict means to shed light on something so that we see it for what it really is. It's like to, to, to pull the, the blanket off. It, it's to, to turn the lights on in the room and to expose um, everything that's there so that the darkness flees and you can see it clearly. You could picture this as a courtroom where the evidence is carefully laid out such that the evidence demands a verdict. There are some times in the courtroom where there just is, there's just no question, right? The evidence is just without a doubt. There's no questions, there's no hung jury, just a unanimous decision to convict. That's what this kind of conviction is. Now here, the Spirit is said to bring conviction concerning three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now regarding sin, the Spirit brings a convicted guilt, a, 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 a conviction of a guilty verdict on the world for rejecting Christ. Did you see that? He says, uh, uh, concerning sin, because the world does not believe in me. The world's failure to believe in Jesus is not just sinful, which it is, but it results in a guilty verdict. Second, Jesus said the Spirit uh, convicts regarding righteousness because the Spirit shows the world that Christ is the righteous one who gives his life, is crucified, buried, and raised, and ascended to the Father. He says, I, I'm going to go to the Father. It's speaking of Jesus' vindication as the righteous one. He is shown to be God's son, the truly righteous one. That's why he is able to overcome the grave. And regarding judgment, the ruler of this world, Satan and his demonic forces is ultimately judged along with all who participate in his kingdom. So if we put all that together, when all of the evidence is properly brought to light, the final verdict is this. The world is guilty for their unbelief in Christ. They're convicted on the basis of Christ's righteousness and judged alongside Satan and his demonic kingdom. Now ultimately, this work of conviction is a grace of God. Why? Because it's the only way people will repent of their unbelief and turn to Christ. If the Spirit left us in our darkness, none of us would turn to Christ. It's the Spirit bringing light on 
bringing conviction to us that we recognize our helplessness, turn away from sin, and turn to Christ. This is true of us when we first believe, and it's true of us every moment after for the rest of our lives as we daily confess and repent of our sins. Friends, we need the exposing and convicting work of the Spirit in order to put sin to death and can, uh, cultivate a life of righteousness. I hope you hear and how we've been resourced by the Spirit that we are never truly alone. We have the help of the Spirit. I know at times we can say, I feel alone. I feel like I'm without help, but the helper is here. He's given us the Spirit to help us and resource us for the life that he has called us to. So as we close, friends, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, as he faced his greatest trial, think about how loving and pastoral it was for Christ to spend his last night offering words of comfort and hope to his disciples. Do you notice he didn't offer pat answers? He didn't answer empty promises. He looked right into their fear of abandonment and said, you are not alone. You are reconciled to God the Father through Christ the Son, and you have the presence of the Holy Spirit. He looked right into their hopelessness and said, you will be restored to life, to live the way that it was always meant to be lived. And he looked into their helplessness and said, God will help you all along the way. And that wasn't just a one-time, 2,000-year-ago conversation. He looks at us today in the same way. These things are still true for us today. So maybe for you right now, as you look around, you're going, you know what, Clint, things are pretty good for me right now. And if that's true, praise God for that. Store this message away for the days ahead. But I know for others, it feels like there is a sinkhole in your soul. I want you to lean into these words of Christ this morning. You are not alone. God is with you in the most profound kind of way. Your future is super bright because of Christ. And right now we have access to the helper, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, who is an ever-present help guiding us on the road ahead. Let's pray.